When I was in middle school, one year for Halloween, I showed up at school dressed as my father. And all my friends knew exactly who I was trying to be. I bought fake hair to make my beard and mustache like my dad had. I wore a pair of jeans, some boots, a black t-shirt, and then I bought a pack of candy cigarettes. And I took those candy cigarettes, put it on the sleeve, and I folded it over to kind of use my sleeve as a pocket to hold my fake cigarettes. Now, the funny thing is, at that point in his life, my father had stopped smoking for a few years. He was still in his jeans and his boots and his black t-shirt, but the pack of cigarettes were gone. And today I'm going to tell you the secret of how my father quit cigarettes cold turkey. Like I said earlier, I was in middle school, so the story takes place when I'm in elementary school. I remember my mom telling me that my dad was in the hospital and that everything will be okay and we are going to go see him. He had a collapsed lung. And he was about, at this time, 34 years old. He had smoked from when he was 14 to 34 for 20 years. So we went into the hospital. We saw my dad. I don't remember much of it, but we were there up until the end of visiting hours. And it just so happened that the doctor walked into the room as we were leaving. And my father introduced us to his doctor. And here is how my father, after being a smoker for 20 years, quit smoking cold turkey. As we left, the doctor looked at my father and said, you got two beautiful kids there. My dad thanked him for the compliment. And the doctor looked at him and said, if you want to see him grow up, I would quit smoking if I were you. Teachers, are your digital assignments getting lost in the black hole of a digital folder? Can I suggest a solution? Fan School. Fan School is a safe and social learning network where students own and share their learning. Think of Fan School as a digital bulletin board for your students' work. Take a look. Go to fan.school today. That is fan.school. And imagine what your classroom space will look like on Fan School. Welcome to your Parent Teacher Conference, where a 24 7 parent and full time teacher discusses issues and concerns from both points of view in an attempt to bridge the gap for the sake of kids. So relax. Grab a coffee or other comfort drink, and let's talk about it. Hello, and welcome to your parent-teacher conference. This is Coach Cullen, your host. On this episode, we're going to talk about a few quotes that I've heard lately about students and children that I think need to be addressed from both the parental view and the teacher view. If you like what you hear on this episode and you think it has some valuable information, please feel free to tell your friends. Just let them know if they go on Spotify or Google Podcast or 
Apple Podcast. I think it's on Amazon Music as well. Just to type in the Parent Teacher Conference Podcast. And when they search for it, I think there is another one with the same title that has been defunct for a few years. But the one they're looking for, of course, is the one with the guy with the baseball hat on and he has a coffee mug to his face. That's me. If you found this on Twitter or on Facebook, feel free to share it. And as always, if you like to continue the conversation, as some people have done, please feel free to reach out to me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. P is in parent, T is in teacher, C is in conference, podcast411 at gmail.com. So on April 25th of this year, the secretary of the Department of Education, his name is Miguel Cardona, he was actually a teacher from Connecticut who... I think he became a superintendent. He might have even been in the State Department of Education there. But he is the Biden administration's Secretary of Education. Well, he tweeted this. Students, you're the boss. We work for you. That's why at U.S. EdGov, basically the Department of Education, we take a student-centered approach to everything we do. See how I plan to... Hashtag raise the bar for our students. And then he gives a link that people can click on. Now let's look at the first phrase, which says, Students, you're the boss. We work for you. As a teacher, no, I don't. I, I don't work for the students. I work for what's best for my students. I, I think that's true. I am there for my students. But um, they're not my boss. Here's what I responded back. You know, so Miguel Cardona, the Secretary of the Department of Education, said, Students, you're the boss. We work for you. I quote tweeted this and I wrote, I won't believe it until Secretary Cardona takes the lead by resigning and allows a student to become the Secretary of Education. And then he applies for a job working in that kid's office. Until then, saying students are the boss is meaningless. That phrase, students, you're the boss, it, it's a weasel phrase. It's you know, weasel words. You know what a weasel word is? They're words that are used really to manipulate people to a point of view. But really, when you think about what's being said or you look for what they're saying in action, they're meaningless. Like, that's what I did. I said, okay, let's take what you're saying here as reality. What you're saying is that you should not have a job. Just like let a child take over. Of course, I'm confident that I, if I have a chance to talk ever, which I doubt, to Secretary Cardona, he would say, come on, that's not what I meant. But that's what you said. As a teacher, I don't see my students as my bosses. That would be a whole lot of bosses I would have to answer to. And I'm sure they all have differences of opinion of what I should do in class. The funny thing is where I see the most uh, unity, where I would see the most unity of my bosses is them denying me ever giving them a test or an essay to write or a project or anything that I think would allow me to see what they're learning in their class, basically any assessment. It's amazing, right? When I say, okay, we're having a test. How many kids do we have to? I would say over half the class. 
I see a teacher like a doctor. And that's why I brought up the situation with my dad. It seemed like everybody smoked back then when I was growing up. So my dad, my dad smoked Marlboros. My grandmother smoked Raleigh's. My grandfather smoked, I believe he smoked Paul Malls. Now, I know my uncle did as well. I think they both smoked Paul Malls. And my uncle was his son-in-law, not son. Actually, I don't think either of his sons. The funny thing is my grandparents smoked. Their four children, my mom being one of them, I don't think any of them did. The only one who did I is my aunt's husband. But we, I, I think we, growing up, it was commonplace to see people smoking. And my dad got into the 1950s and he became a smoker when he was a teenager. So the doctor tells him, you need to stop because you collapsed the lung at 34. My father was in good shape overall, except for smoking. And he stopped. Now, of course, he could have told the doctor to shut up or mind your own business. That's within my dad's right. But my dad wasn't the boss. I mean, he could also say, I don't want you as my doctor anymore. I mean, in that sense, I guess. But a student can't really say that. But sometimes a doctor has to give advice like, if you want to see your kids grow up, I would stop smoking if I were you that they know the listener may not want to hear. And of course, it's commonplace when you receive medical advice to get a second opinion. I mean, the patient's going to make the final decision of what's best for them. And that could be right or wrong. And the doctor does serve the patient. But the patient can't turn to the doctor and say, listen, I only want to hear positive things. I don't want to hear any negative I don't care what the test results say. Tell me good things. Tell me they came back perfect. Well, then the doctor will actually lose his job, right? He could be sued for malpractice. He, If he works for a group, he could possibly lose his job to his real bosses. I mean, the doctor is the expert and is supposed to provide information that he or she believes is in the best interest of the patient but it doesn't mean the patient is the boss the patient is the boss in the sense of they can accept the information as what's best or not and in our school situation the teacher is going to provide what is best for their students the students can receive that or reject it. You give an assessment or you give an activity that you believe as the expert will deepen a child's understanding of a particular topic. They decide they're not going to do it. Well, okay. They didn't do it. They're going to suffer the consequences, which I'm still going to deliver, like a zero. I'm going to contact their parents. But my boss isn't the child. My boss is my principal. But I'm working for what I believe, based on what I've learned over the years as a teacher and my continual study, I take actions in the classroom 
based on what I think is best for the student, not the other way around. It's not that I don't listen to students' concerns or ask them questions about how I'm teaching. I, I've often said one of my favorite lines to ask kids or favorite questions comes from the old New York City Mayor Ed Koch. If you remember, if you again, if you grew up when I grew up, you knew who Ed Koch was, even if you didn't live in the Northeast. He was just one of those politicians that everybody knew. And his famous line, he, they say he would walk the streets of New York City and he would just go up to people and say, hey, I'm Ed Koch. How am I doing? Kind of like, how am I doing as mayor? He truly wanted to do what was best. He loved New York City. He wanted to do what was best in New York City. And I feel that way as a teacher. I love teaching. I love the classroom. I want to do what's best for kids. And I'll ask my students from time to time a form of the question, how am I doing? But students aren't my bosses. Sometimes students give me advice that I can't follow, that I don't believe is in their best interest. Now, I know some teachers may look at that and go, oh, you're one of those draconian teachers who adultism, you're just going to force an adult's view on children. No, I'm just following the science and following reality. I mean, the science says a child's prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed till about 25. So the prefrontal cortex is a part of the brain that develops last and it's responsible for processes such as emotional control, reasoning, logic, problem solving, planning, memory, focus and attention, developing and carrying out goals, impulse control, developing a personality, transitioning from one text to another. I think I'm going to do a whole episode on the prefrontal cortex because more and more, we're handing, we, we feel like as teachers, we need to give more of the classroom over to children. They know what's best for them. But at the same time, we say, follow the science. Well, the science is saying that the students we have in our classroom, the part of their brain responsible for things like emotional control, reasoning, logic, problem solving, planning, is still in the developmental stage and won't be finished till the average age of college is over, but yet we should give them more and more of the decision-making and have them be our bosses. It doesn't make sense scientifically. And I know some teachers are listening to this and will say, oh, you just, you're childish or childism. And that's a real thing. I've mentioned this on podcasts before, this idea of childism that we're subjecting children we have a view of children kind of like a racist view of other races we treat children as children is a sign of that bias that we tell them what to do what my statement here would probably be seen as childism and my state university rutgers has a department of childism in it when i tell the child to do something that i believe is in their best interest they could turn around and say, no, you're oppressing the child to do what you want. Or maybe I'm loving the child enough to tell them no. You know, I tell my students and I tell my kids, my children all the time, the most loving word sometimes in the English language is the word no. Because... As a parent, I'm telling you no, and that's why I tell my students. I go, when your parents tell you no, it's for good reason. And sometimes, yeah, I get it. They'll say, because I said so. But they, 
They were kids once. We were all kids once. And we know that, although we don't put in scientific terms, we know that our emotional control, our reasoning, our logic, our problem solving, our planning, etc., all those things that our prefrontal cortex needs time to develop and form, we understand that as a young adult, teenager, that we want to make choices that our parents know is not in our best interest or runs a risk too great for our welfare. I've shared on other episodes, my dad was a factory worker. When I was really young, he was working seven days a week, five days in the factory, two days at a gas station, working on cars and pumping gas in order to make ends meet. He wanted my mom to be in the household with us. He didn't want her to work. And for him, it was all about making sure that his kids didn't have to work so hard like he did to provide for their families. So my father was tough on me in high school. He didn't accept a C. He's like, you're smarter than that. You're not getting a C or you're not doing that with your friends. And I thought it stunk. and I was mad at him. I thought he didn't like me. He was preventing me from having fun. But as you got to be an adult, as that prefrontal cortex formed, I think we all realize that we look back at those times of those fights we had in our adolescence with our parents, that more often than not, they were absolutely right. And that they were doing it out of love for us. Not so they could oppress us or domineer over us. And when push comes to shove, who should be guiding the students the most? Who should have the, their most voice in a child's life? The teacher? The, a guidance counselor at school? A social worker? Or the child's parents? Now, please don't bring up the worst case scenario because they'll be like, oh, we'll have those kids who have parents who are abusive or parents who don't care. It's sad. Those parents do exist. I feel bad for those children. And yes, hopefully that those kids and school can provide adults to step in the place of parents who aren't parenting. But when you look across America, most parents are parenting. And we can't assume they're doing it worst or apply the same actions we would do to a child whose parents are neglectful or abusive to parents who are loving and caring and providing. That would be like, and we've all been there, right? We've been When we were in school, do you remember when a teacher would say, if one more person talks, you're all in after school. And the 24 out of the 25 students do not talk. And Johnny starts yapping. Or even like two or three kids start yapping. And the next thing you know, you are all being punished for it. How is that fair? That is why you can't assume everybody is the worst possible parent. It's not fair for parents who are in the majority who are doing absolutely right. Now, you may disagree. As a teacher, as a staff member, you may disagree with with what's best for that child. 
But as long as it's not abusive or neglectful, that's not on you. I mean, the best example I can give is religious affiliation. Many teachers have different religious affiliations to their students. So are you saying that if a teacher or a guidance counselor or a social worker or a principal has a religious point of view that they believe is best for their students, that they should go out preaching it? And that could be no religious point of view. If it's atheism, should they try to deconvert their students from whatever religious beliefs they hold? Of course, we would say no. That's wrong, and it is wrong. It's unconstitutional. So as educational staff, we may be in disagreement with the approach a parent is taking for their child, but if it's not abusive and it's not neglectful, if it's not something that we need to contact DIFUS about, then you're like the doctor. It is frustrating as a teacher. It is frustrating where you're telling a parent, listen, your kid isn't doing work and I, I, I'm at a loss. I, I, you know, can you help? And the parents are like, no, it's on them. Okay. You know, they have to learn that they get what they get. Now, some people might say that's a harsh approach. But you know what? That's what the parents have decided. They believe that in receiving the child receiving bad grades and just getting their consequence, you may disagree with it all you want. You're not going to call up Dyfus about it and say they don't care about grades. They're not, that's not what they're saying. They're saying, well, I really believe that they should suffer the consequences of not doing their work. And we're, it's not our job to keep pressuring them to do work. They have to learn that. Sometimes kids do need to be pressured to do work. I know sometimes my own children do, but that's not my child. That's the approach they want to take. Or you have the other extreme where you think the parents are being so draconian in making sure their child does the work that it's hard for them to function because they're stressed out and full of anxiety. We can share that point of view with parents, but in the end, it's going to be the parents making the decision for their child of their approach. And if we believe in diversity, we have to understand that there's going to be a diversity of approaches. I mean, even in child psychology, when you look at psychologists and stuff, there's a diversity of approaches. So a school just choosing their pet approach in raising children, you can't make that the standard and turn around and say, we're supportive of diversity. And this leads to the second comment that was made. It was made by President Biden. And he made a similar comment about a year ago. So he had the National Teacher of the Year in the Rose Garden, and he was praising her. And he quoted something she said, and then added to it. which Because I, I don't think she said this whole thing. So let me read it to you. President Biden said, there's no such thing as someone else's child. Our nation's children are all our children. There's no such thing as someone else's child. Our nation's children are all our children. Now, I don't think a teacher would say, our nation's children are all our children. No, I, I can see her say, there's no such thing as someone else's child. 
in terms of the care that she has for the students in her classroom. But I totally disagree with that sentiment. And it's not the first time President Biden made a sentiment like that. A year earlier, in basically the same occasion, honoring National Teachers of the Year, he said this, because you know, look, these aren't, we always talk about, quote, these children, end quote. They're not someone else's children. They're our children. And they are the kite strings that literally lift our national ambitions aloft in a literal sense. Think about it. Okay, let me remember, in quotes, these children. We always talk about these children. They're not someone else's children. They're our children. Well, who else's children would they be? They're, obviously, he doesn't mean another country's children. We, we get the idea that there are children in the United States and that the government is taking an active interest in their lives. But who does he mean by they're not someone else's children? Well, who's the someone else? And that's the concern that a lot of parents are having. And they see in certain situations that government officials or unelected government bureaucrats, usually in the educational realm, want to make decisions for their children. When a parent has a child, or in my situation, worked really hard to adopt children, we're not doing it seeing the children as first and foremost resources for America. We're seeing them as objects to love and to provide for and to guide in making good decisions. And then you have a few of my more boisterous colleagues in the educational realm. And this is actually from a teacher who doesn't teach too far from me. She quoted on Twitter this, yes, so many teachers don't get this. Teaching is a political act. Teaching is resistance. Teaching is about revolutionary love for our students and for our world. Good teaching is emancipatory. Emancipatory from home. Because again, like I said earlier, if you go to this Childism Institute, that belief says emancipatory from their parents. Now, parents, if you're listening, don't overreact. Most teachers believe all this is a bunch of crap. But you need to be aware there are some people in educational circles who don't. So don't, again, like I always say, ask questions. You know, I love Ted Lasso. I've been watching Ted Lasso. And if you think a teacher is assuming the role or wanting to assume the role as parent, teacher, guidance counselor, social worker, principal, if you feel they're overstepping their bounds before assuming that that's what they're doing, ask questions like Ted Lasso. Um, he quotes the Walt Whitman line in a classic scene. Look it up on YouTube. If you've never seen Ted Lasso, look up, find out what it's about. Look up the clip. Just type in YouTube, Ted Lasso darts. It is one of the greatest scenes that I've seen on television ever. But he quotes Walt Whitman. And the line is, be curious, not judgmental. And I think we all have to go into these meetings that we're concerned that a the school is overstepping their bounds with the idea of being curious, not judgmental, asking questions. So that way you can have an appropriate response rather than a response that may not be needed. You may realize after asking some good questions, 
oh, I can see why. I can see they have my child's best at heart, but they're not really overstepping their bounds. Or they didn't know what your concerns would be to that. And they're like, oh, we, we know. We, no, we can take that away. I've seen that happen where I've addressed teachers or school staff and really quickly they back off. They, oh, we can take that away. That's not a big deal. If, that's, if you're opposed to that, that's fine. Like I said, the majority of teachers believe that you are you are the parent. You make the final decision for your child that they don't. Majority believe that. Always go into a meeting like that. Of course, the elephant in the room is the topic why there's a lot of concern of this idea of parental rights. And the fact that as parents, the Supreme Court does back up your rights to make decisions for your child. I even showed, so legally you have that right. And also I've shown you Scientifically, somebody needs to step in to act as children's prefrontal cortex until it fully develops. And the elephant in the room is a transsexual issue. Kids transitioning. Now, parents are complaining in states that are restricting their choices for their children transitioning. They're upset that schools are not being allowed to put that in the curriculum. They're upset that they can't make certain medical decisions that their doctors say would be best for their child on transitioning. So they see it as a parental rights issue. So how is it any less of a parental rights issue in states that have laws saying that schools must hide from students' parents that their kids are transitioning in school, that they're going by different names or different pronouns in school, but when the teachers address the parent, they go by the legal name that is on the birth certificate. And that is called social transitioning. But at the end of the day, where are those parents' rights? You know, Secretary Cardona used the term student-centered approach. The district where I live, where my daughters go to school, they use the same thing in their policy saying that they have a student-centered approach about keeping identity changes away from parents if a child is transitioning. They use the word student-centered because if they said child-centered, they, they know full well the parents need to be involved there. But now, by staying student-centered, you've just replaced the government school with the parent. I I'm sorry, that's how it is. And like I said in the beginning about weasel words, student-centered is a weasel word that will make people feel justified in that approach. Now, I've learned recently that some higher-ups in my town's like administration and board have been, might possibly be listening to this. And I can show you actually an email from the acting superintendent. The funny thing is the link that she gave me to this policy no longer works. So in terms of the policy for my district, at one time it was there, but you changed your website and for some reason now this policy disappeared. Maybe you voted it out, I don't know. But when I tried to actually refer to the policy, I couldn't because it said a 404 ever page not found. What schools will say is we're doing this for the safety of the child. Safety from whom? The parents? And if you really press them, and, and I have, I've asked, well, is it a physical abuse situation or just because they won't be accepting? And I've had somebody tell me, oh, just because they won't be accepting. They're trying to keep the child safe. Now, one thing is because of high rates of suicide. But right there, the problem becomes a catch-22. If you're saying that the reasoning that you're keeping it from a parent because of the high rates of suicide in these situations, 
The problem becomes you're also a mandated reporter that you need to report that to parents, that their child is, could be potentially suicidal, right? So basically you're saying you're keeping them safe, but then going against the whole mandated reporter policy. And there actually is a case going on in Florida where a parent is suing the school district for that very thing. Their child tried to commit suicide, and when they found out, as they dug into it, they, they realized the school was keeping secret from him their transit, the child's transitioning in school. And if you're going to go with, well, on the expert, I'm like the doctor in this situation. I don't think a teacher has any standing in terms of that. That's really probably more guidance counselor and social workers. But that's assuming that the parent has not read up on any other views of what should happen to their child. For example, I have two young daughters. And since this is a new trend, and I know that because I've been teaching for 30 years and it's new, and being a concerned parent who truly loves his daughters and wants to be on top of this growing trend, I hear the arguments from one side, because all I got to do is be in the educational world to see it. I see it on Twitter all the time. But I also, that provide counter information to just affirmation. So such as Irreversible Damage by Abigail Shire and The End of Gender by Dr. Deborah So. And by the way, both of those books you cannot buy at Target. They censored them. I think the Shire book they had on the market for a while to people complained because it gave an alternative view of the whole situation for young adults. Now, we're talking teens here, right? We're talking somebody else's children. That's all I'm talking about. And I think a parent needs to see the table. Now, if you say, well, they're just, all we're doing, we're not talking about me anything medical. We're just having them change your name like a nickname. But have those people who state that read the CAST report. The CAST report is coming out of Great Britain over some lawsuits that kids who transitioned now as young adults started suing the doctors and the Tavistock um, facility, which I believe was promoting all this care. They've, Britain actually have, has walked back. So has Finland. They've walked back teen transitioning. It's, you know, as an, an Atlantic, the Atlantic, not a conservative. I know a lot of people think this is a political view, but the Atlantic, definitely not a conservative um, magazine, has an article that they just put out on May 4th of this year, so only a few days ago. And the title is The Only Way Out of the Child Gender Culture War. And the subheading is The U.S. is Becoming an Outlier. Punitive bans won't help. Better evidence will. Our kids should not be political footballs. They shouldn't. But yet that's what this whole argument is becoming. I know some people will be listening to this and will start calling me a transphobe. Other people who are agreeing with me will call the people who will be willing to call me a transphobe a groomer. And you know what? Calling names ain't going to fix the situation. And as a parent, I'll say this. If my school where my daughters attend keep me out of that conversation, no matter how much they want to convince themselves they're doing good for my child, they are wrong. Because frankly, they're listening to activists instead of parents, instead of that child's parent. They have chosen to take a political view of my child. I am sorry, that's what it is. Because if they truly were concerned, right from the bat, before they made any decision, they should bring the parent in and said, let's talk about this. Because long after my child is out of that school, they will still be my child. And they will no longer be that school student. 
I don't care what platitudes a teacher says. They will never have the bonds of a parent to a child. As a parent and a teacher, here is the creed I live by. And I think it's a good one. And I would have to say that if I show this to the majority of teachers, they would they would listen and say, I, I can agree with what you just said. So I'm going to end the episode with my creed. My class is filled with students. I teach history with a little bit of respect and perseverance, among other things. But at the end of the day, they, my students, are other people's children. As a teacher, I must respect that line and expect my daughter's teachers to do the same. Thank you for joining me on the Parent Teacher Conference podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this podcast with friends. They can be teachers, they can be parents, they can be someone who's just interested in education and parenting. If you have a comment, a question, or an idea for a future topic, please feel free to reach out to me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. Remember, a good teacher cares deeply for their students. Good parents love those students, their children, deeply.